Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Donald McIntyre and this is Murderers and Their Mothers, the companion podcast to the CBS reality series which airs every Sunday from the 15th of May at 10pm. Now throughout this series we're investigating some of the world's most notorious killers and asking were these murderers born evil or did their relationships with their mothers make them into monsters? On today's episode, we're looking at the case of Dennis Nielsen. During the late 70s and early 80s, he killed at least 15 young men after luring them to his London flat. But that wasn't the whole story. He would keep their bodies, often for months on end, talking to them and sleeping next to them until the stench of rotting flesh meant he had to dispose of them by butchering the remains and flushing them down the drain or burning the corpses in his garden. Well, joining me to discuss the gruesome Dennis Nielsen case are Dr Elizabeth Yardley, Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Hi, Liz. Hello. And also Dr Mike Berry, a forensic clinical psychologist. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Well, Dennis Nielsen was born in 1945 in Fraserburgh, a remote fishing port in Scotland. His mother Betty was local, but his father Olaf was a Norwegian sailor who had settled in Scotland during the war. Dennis was their second of three children. Sadly, Olaf was not a good parent. The family never lived together, and when Dennis was just four years of age, his parents divorced, leaving Betty and the children living with her father. To add to this unhappy situation, his highly religious mother was a cold woman who was unable to show Dennis any affection or warmth. However, he did find comfort and warmth through his grandfather, with whom he developed a very strong and loving bond. So let's discuss Nielsen's early life in more detail. Mike, what was the significance of his Norwegian father and the failure of that marriage? Well, having a Norwegian father is neither here nor there, but what was important was his father was a soldier who was over in Scotland and his main occupation was being a soldier and not being a father. Betty apparently conceived the children on his um, way days from the, from being a soldier. So they didn't have a proper marriage by any means, but simply he would come home every now and then, see her, seem to get her pregnant, and then go back to being a soldier. But we, you've got to look at it in terms of the war. There were lots of children brought up in single-parent families because the husbands, fathers were out fighting wars for years on end. So... Nothing unusual in this. I think the important thing here is that they never really formed a family home together, did they? So so when his father does go out of the picture, it's quite a different situation from, from what you'd have if, if they'd 
establish that that family environment together. So Olaf and Betty, the marriage broke up. Who, crucially to my mind, who does Dennis blame for the breakup of the marriage? He would do, like most children in that situation, blame the mother. The father goes off and it's therefore the mother's fault. So we've got a problem here that he would be blaming Betty for the loss of this father figure who drifted in and out of the uh, family home. And that's very much about proximity, isn't it? So sure. children will, will blame whoever is closest, you know, and he wasn't there, so... You know, Dennis wasn't going to blame him, but but Betty was. Betty would probably be the one who who laid down the law in the family, and uh, she would therefore be seen very much in a punitive sense. While Dad would be coming in and out, and it's likely to be more of a joyous relationship. Betty, we believe, was very cold and unemotional towards Dennis, and even more so as he got older. And Dennis appeared to get very little of those things we expect from our mothers and the women in our life, unconditional love, that physical affection, praise, warmth or encouragement. How did this affect his emotional development, Liz? Well, it depends on what was going on with the other children in the family as well. So so if the other children weren't getting a lot of warmth and attention, then yeah, he might find some allies within the family. They've got a common experience. But but it seems to me that, that Dennis was kind of singled out for a lack of, of attention. And I know that his mother was reported in, in later years as saying there was just something about him that repelled me from, from cuddling him. And of course, the more he was repelled, one would expect like any adult or child you would be expecting more, you'd be demanding more and that would create even greater pain for the young Dennis. Yep, the cycle of rejection gets harder and harder. He wants attention, he wants love, he's not getting it, therefore he feels rejected, he wants it more and more. It's a sad situation. Well, as we know, he did find some comfort through his grandfather. Here's forensic psychologist Kerry Danes. His grandfather was very much the father figure. And his grandfather did all of the quality things that his mother didn't have time for. So they'd go for long walks, they'd fly kites, and they'd talk to each other. And it was through this relationship that Dennis felt valuable and felt that he was actually worthwhile. Mike, did his grandfather take the role of a surrogate father, or indeed surrogate father and mother to Dennis? I think the grandfather's role was very important. He was the stable male in uh, Dennis's life. Yes, he was probably a hero, but then most grandfathers are to young children. They've got the time and energy to put into a young child that the father often doesn't have. It's ironic that grandfathers make better fathers than the fathers. I think another important point is that Dennis was was targeted for love and affection by his grandfather. So it would be him and his grandfather who'd go off for the day, who'd go off on long walks. It, and it wasn't quite the same with, with Dennis's siblings. So he felt like the special one at this point. So was this the, perhaps the beginning of sowing the seeds of some sense of grandiosity, which we would see later in life with Dennis? We look back and, um, and we see that he, he turns out to be an incredibly narcissistic individual. So, so could it have been the seeds were planted there? I don't you, know. No, I you disagree. disagree Mike, yeah. I disagree. I, I think he's one stable person in Dennis's life. And that was essential for his development because he wasn't getting it from a father, not getting it from a mother, but he's getting spoiled in a loving way by his grandfather with time, with attention, not not presence, but just giving him time and attention. And clearly, it was a mutually satisfying relationship. Does it seem to you, Liz, that one would counteract the other? 
Yeah, it could do. I mean, having experienced you know, not very much love and warmth from, from his mum to, to then have that figure who he desperately wanted you know, in his life to spend time with him and, and give him attention, that, that would have been something really good for him. At the moment, we can paint a picture of, of a kid who suffered some trauma. There are some neutralising and positive forces in his life. But, you know, there's still everything to play for in the life of this young kid. But his relationship with his grandfather is good because it's not based on attention. He's not attention-seeking. He's actually being given the love and care from his grandfather. So he hasn't got to demand it. And that's the good thing about the relationship. With his mum, he has to demand attention and warmth and response from her. He's not doing that with Grandad. When Dennis was just six, his grandfather dies of a heart attack while out at sea. Dennis's mother doesn't tell him that his grandfather has died and the first Dennis knows about his beloved grandfather's death is on the day of the funeral. The body is placed in an open coffin to be viewed by family, friends and his mother holds up the young Dennis Nielsen to see his grandfather. Mike, the reality of this must have been devastating for Dennis. I I can't believe how stupid anybody could be. I'm sorry to be so... It's it's ridiculous that you wait till you have a a body in a coffin to tell a child that their beloved grandfather's dead. I mean, it's so cruel, so cold, so callous, and it's indicative of the kind of relationship he had with the mother. Instead of her sitting him down saying, I've got terrible news, Grandad's not well, Grandad's not Mm. well at all, Grandad's died, and you slowly introduce it and he's gone to heaven, whatever that may mean to her to a child, things like that, and slowly introduce it and we're going to have a farewell party and he's really pleased to go because he's going to meet up with whoever he's going to meet up with and do that kind of story. That's what a child wants to hear. Not, oh, by the way, there's a stiff and it's your granddad. Because, of course, the mortician would have micrated this body into as lifelike a living person. You know, to the young Dennis, you know, he's looking at this creatures caught halfway between the living and the dead. I mean, what impact is this going to have on him? Well, he's going to be incredibly confused by it because um, I think he, he says in later years he, he didn't know whether his grandfather was asleep, what was going on. There was no explanation of it. And I think in a way, you know, although it's quite an extreme example, it is quite typical of attitudes towards death in, in families at this this point in time. So there isn't the, the kind of explanation and, and the support that perhaps children would get today. There was very much, a, you know, children are, are seen and not heard and this is something that's happened and the children are just kind of in the background. But the impact on them is incredible. I think what we have here is the ultimate rejection. He's put all his love and attention into Grandad. The Grandad loves and cares for him and then he goes and dies. That he perceives as the ultimate rejection. The one person he loves is rejected him by dying and I think that would have been very important. The death bit about keeping other bodies dead is that I think he seriously needs somebody with him and if they were alive he'd be happy if they're not alive and they're dead long so with him when he was older he had that it was the person being there whether they had a pulse or not was irrelevant Well, in 1954, there was more turbulence around the corner when Dennis was nine. His mother, Betty, married Adam Scott and the family moved to the village of Stricken. Here, the new couple would have four more children, meaning Dennis was now one of seven children in the family and his mother had even less time for him. How does Dennis fit into this new 
blended and extended family, Mike? I don't think he does at all. He's lost his father, he's lost his grandfather, he's got a, a stepfather who's produced four more rivals to his mum's attention. And I suspect, being one of the older children, there's the pressure on him to be an older child, to take responsibility for the younger ones, not to be a problem. So here we've got a kid who actually wants to be cared and loved for, and I suspect his mother's saying, oh, well, you know, grow up, or to use the expression now, man up, rather than be the child that he wants to be. He's gone from being the apple of his grandfather's eye to being just one of seven children and the the potential attention and love that, that he could get from his mum is being diluted with, with every new addition to the family. And it's around this time when we know that Betty would speak in the future of the repulsion she feels. She actually is struggling even to hug and hold or even touch him. I mean, what kind of impact will that on have on him now being one of seven and you know actually being repelled, the opposite of motherly affection. Well, if he's got something to compare that to, so if that's different from the relationships that she has with her other children, he's going to feel even more excluded and marginalised, isn't he? And at this stage, there's some discussion about whether Betty has been suffering from postnatal depression, something within the era would have been not heavily spoken of and kept behind closed doors and drawn Mm. curtains. Yeah, and it's the idea of the privacy of the family, isn't it? You know, we sort out our problems within the family and and there are business and and maybe there weren't other people looking out for for Dennis in the community. I'm not sure I'd go with your postnatal depression argument. I mean, if she goes on to have three or four more children, I I think uh, she's unlikely to have had seven children without some midwife or somebody picking it up. They would have seen that she's not caring for children, she's not mothering them the children would have not developed as well as they should have done. So that would have been picked up. I think it's much more likely that she was depressed, clinically depressed. She's comes from a, a very tough background. She's lost her husband. She's raising these kids. She's got another brood of kids there. In a very tough life, I think she's probably depressed, but that wouldn't stop her having children. It wouldn't stop her carrying on with life, but her life wouldn't be good, though. And she wouldn't be the only person to be depressed in that community, would she? So she wouldn't stand out as particularly... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Unusual. Dennis, now aged 11 or 12, is beginning to show signs of disappearing into a fantasy world, a world of swallows and Amazons. And he talks about wanting to build a raft and sail out to sea. But he's also beginning to have homoerotic desires and dreams. That's what? what you'd expect at 11 or 12. You'd expect him. He's, he's, the hormones are going around like the clappers. He's getting erections. He's getting development of his body. He, he's starting to become sexually aware of people. His problem is that he's interested in, in males or he's not very interested in females and he's confused by that because the culture is very much heterosexual dominance. And don't forget in those days homosexuality was illegal so therefore there wasn't the helplines and the support that you would get today. So he's very confused. He's supposed to be following his, his father and his grandfather's sexual behaviour but he's actually finding that he's interested in the boys rather than the girls. What we've got to remember is that he's he's grown up in a very kind of devout household, you know, a very strong commitment to, to Christian values and beliefs. And, and so there's ideas about sin and, and very, very strong dividing lines between what's right and what's wrong. And he would have would picked up on the fact that this is something that's wrong. I mean, there's an incident on the beach which he talks and has written about in his prison diaries about when a young boy is apparently rescued from sea and apparently his limp body is dragged and he founds himself in this kind of erotic situation where somebody is standing over him and may have ejaculated over him. There's a kind of complicated dream here. To what significance do you give this, Mike? I give it a lot of significance. Here it's a very homoerotic image that he's created. Now, whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. I suspect it may not be true, but it's allowing him fantasies about his sexual behaviour in a way that it's acceptable for him. It wasn't me, it was the other boy that made me excited rather than taking responsibility for himself. So whether it's true or not doesn't matter, but I think it's a significant indicator of his behaviour about sexuality. Is he aware at this stage that he's different to his peers? Oh, I would have thought at 12 he would know. At 12, I would have thought, even in that very restrictive environment he comes from, that he would know about it. He's going to hear lots of stories from other schoolboys about uh, shirt lifters and things like this, and it'd be very derogative, and I use that word as a derogative example. He would be hearing that, but interestingly, he wouldn't know what it was about. Same way as boys at 12 or 13 in those days would be talking about sex all the time, but be misguided in their, in their knowledge about sex. And even more so, if you're gay, you would be totally confused by the information you're getting around you. Liz, it seems to me that this must increase the isolation and loneliness that he must feel within this blended family in which he's practically now an afterthought. And he hasn't really recovered or found any kind of emotional stability since he lost his grandfather. Well, it's this constant reinforcement of the fact that he's different and that he's something other than the people around him. So within the the family unit, his mother was particularly cold towards him. Um, As he's growing up and he's developing feelings towards, towards men, towards other boys, he's 
he's getting the impression that actually I'm, I'm different in this respect as well. So it's that idea of not fitting in anywhere. When Dennis turns 15, he decides it's time to leave home and to place this small, isolated community in the past. In an attempt to discover the world, he joins the Army Catering Corps, a place he would stay for the next 12 years. Now, Liz, why do you think he's joined the Army in particular? Because there are many other places and occupations he could choose. Well, I think it is perhaps a a means of escape for him. I mean, he's in a community, he's in a family where he doesn't really fit in. He doesn't feel a sense of belonging there you know his, his grandfather is is long gone so so maybe it is looking for for belonging somewhere else now when he joins the catering corps he learns butchery skills which sadly will become very significant later in life now oddly enough despite your forensic psychological skills you too worked in a meat factory yes. what kind of skills is he learning here how important is how, this how to separate joints that's the main thing and that's actually quite interesting because you learn how to cut up a body but that also gives profilers or um, when you have a dead body you look and see whether it's been hacked or whether it's been cut away properly if you're used to using a knife and taking the the, the bones out of the joints, you don't mark it, you don't leave scarring on the on the on the bones, and that tells the, the profiler that you've been doing this a lot of times. Most people, when they try to chop up a body, make a real hash of it. You need to do it a lot of times to get it right. If he's working as a butcher in the army, he's cutting up uh, sheep carcass, uh, lamb carcass, beef carcass. He's getting used to it and you get a you get a skill with the knife that you don't lose and what's interesting is even when you're drunk you still do it properly while in the army apart from cutting up carcasses for the kitchen he's going to see dead bodies witness and see death through service in Aden. How significant is this, the combination of these butchery skills and the fact he becomes comfortable with death around him? No, it doesn't come comfortable with death. I think that's one point I'd make. But yes, he's seeing a lot of people. I see that the the death during his army service much more important than seeing his grandfather dead. He saw his grandfather dead in a sleeping pose and that's quite nice in, 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 in one way. He was seeing soldiers being killed, blown up, things like that. That's much more traumatic, and I think that would have a much more impact on him than, mm. than seeing his grandfather. And he knows exactly what's happening in the army. These people are losing their lives because other people are, are attacking them you know, intentionally. And he wasn't really able to make sense of the death of his grandfather and seeing the body because nobody explained it to him, but he knows exactly what's happening when he's seeing death in the army. It's interesting because the drinking culture in the army and while he was out in Aden, he finds it hard to take a drink. But this obviously is a disinhibitor. To what extent is that drinking culture going to allow him to explore his sexuality while he's away under the camouflage of the army? I think it it can give him an excuse to explain it away if people confront him about it. So he can turn around and say, oh, it's terribly drunk. And, you know, that'll be more acceptable, you know, within the army where where drinking culture is something that's quite well established. he took advantage of me. He made that quite clear. He wanted to be drunk so somebody could take advantage of him rather than him taking advantage or being predatory with men or women. He wanted them to do it. And his sexual fantasies, he seems to talk in later life about a sexual fantasy with a dead soldier. 
What's going on there, do you think, Liz? Well, I think sometimes we've got to take with a pinch of salt some of the stuff he says later on in terms of the, the writings that he produces when he's in prison. So I think when you've got a narcissist like Dennis Nilsson, there's a tendency to embellish and exaggerate and dramatise events that have happened in his life. I think it's much more to do with he can't get rejected. He's not being marked out of ten. If you've got a stiff, they can't say you were crap. So he, he, can have, he can have a dead body, he can do what he wants with it, he's in total control. He's the producer of his own internal video and there's no, nobody to complain about it. Well, after 12 years in the army, Dennis left the forces and returned home in an attempt to build a relationship with his mother and he would later claim to discuss his homosexuality with her. But his time in Scotland was short and aged 27, he soon joined the Metropolitan Police and moved to London. Now, why leave the army? Maybe it had just run its natural course for him and he just wanted to move on. And army life is quite intense. It becomes a lifestyle, it becomes an identity and maybe he was bored of that identity. Do you think that his mother knew he was gay? No, his mother didn't think he was gay. She's never made any suggestion he was gay. Mind you, we are talking about this cold woman who's hardly likely to talk about his love life and his sex life in any meaningful way. I think she saw him very much as go away and get married. You've done your travelling around the world bit, settle down, get a wifey, get your kids and make me a grandmother. And I think even if she had suspected that there was something about him that that wasn't going to conform to what was expected of of men in that community, I think she would have explained it away by saying, it's a phase, he'll get over it. And I don't think it would have been something that she would have taken seriously. In London, Dennis can now live a life with a new sense of freedom, as author Russ Coffey explains. There is a gay scene. It's London. It's not Fraserburgh. It's certainly not the army. It's, it's, It's allowed. It's permissible. This should be the happiest time. So to some extent, he at last can be openly gay in London, Liz, even for the times that were in it. He can be more open than he's been able to be at home with his family in that period after he he left the army. So, So I think that there is the idea that now he's found an environment where he can belong, where he can be himself. And he begins to have his first gay experiences, our one night stands, but he's not quite in relationship territory, Mike. No, but he's experimenting like he should have done when he was a teenager, in a way. He's kind of delayed his sexual development uh, that he should have been making those kind of mistakes and passes and uh, relationships as a teenager and then developing that into a much more mature relationship when he gets in his 20s. If you look at the big picture, he's joining the army, he's gay, slightly trying to rip from a repressed community, trying to camouflage it, trying to come to terms with... Then he joins the police. The point you've made before and in the show, Liz, about his search for hyper-masculinity as a camouflage. So now joining the police, one would expect. Now, what are we talking about here. Well, you've got two things going on, haven't you? You've got him moving away from from home, so he's moving to an area which is going to be much more tolerant of of his lifestyle and who he is. But he's inserting himself again into another quite masculine environment of, of the the police service. But that might be something that that is a conscious choice, maybe. Well, it could be a big mistake. He's going because he likes a family, but I think the police are very anti-homosexual, certainly in those days. So I think he couldn't come out in the police force. He couldn't come out in the army. But what he's getting is discipline in the military background. He's getting discipline in the police. It's very hierarchical. He knows his place. He's got the work colleagues that have all got the same philosophy in in life. That's what he's getting at the risk of them finding out that he's, he's gay. 
And then he decides to leave the police, decides it's not for him. He doesn't talk in great detail about this. But he talks about then taking on various clerical and security jobs. Now, you're saying that he's doing clerical jobs and security. The guy's got to make a living. He can get temporary employment in security and clerical jobs. And then he decides to join yet another part of the establishment, the British Civil Service, not known for its radical thinking. It's a very conservative, structured, hierarchical system. Gives him a structure which he clearly wants. But he also has the dilemma... And the dilemma is he's not satisfying his sexual needs, he's not satisfying his emotional needs at a different level. And that's what's really causing the problem. So he indulges in one-night stands, quickies, things like that, but that's not what he wants. He wants emotional stability. He's got work stability, but he hasn't got the emotional stability. And Liz, he's still craving that emotional approval and stability in their relationship with his mother through his writings. They're writing regularly, he's telling her of his achievements and his success and his work. Yet still, there seems to be an empty gap in his life. At this point in time, he could quite easily have just cut contact off, couldn't he? He's living in a city, you know, many, many miles away. He's, he's living his own life. But I think the fact that he's keeping in touch with his mother is evidence of, of the fact that he's looking for approval still. In 1975, Dennis does at last have his very first gay relationship. He meets David Galishan, who's barely 18, unemployed and living at a hostel. Um, what's the significance of this relationship and how does it develop, Mike? Well, it developed very quickly. He basically picked him up and then within days moved him into the flat. But it clearly shows that he wants a relationship. He, he needs a relationship. The sex doesn't sound to be that good either side but he wants a relationship. Unfortunately, I think David sees him very much as a meal ticket. I'm getting water fed and sex as well, you know. And quite quickly, he almost adopts the female role of being the housewife, and I do apologise for the sexism of that. But at the time, he actually becomes more of a a wife than a, a flatmate, and clearly that goes on for a while, and then Dennis doesn't like it. I think maybe he doesn't like that relationship. Clearly, David doesn't. And David's the one that actually spits up the relationship. Although Dennis, because of his ego, has to say, oh, I kicked him out. Mm. Where the evidence shows quite clearly he was upset about it and then he goes on to behave uh, in a way that we know of. And I think another significant thing here is that Dennis has got somebody who, who appears to need him somebody who is to a degree dependent on him and I think that brings about that maternal kind of behaviour that you see in him. And why do we think the relationship breaks down? We hear about his narcissism, his temper tantrums and David just simply had enough and walks out. David has got into a relationship with Dennis very quickly. Things have, have developed at, at this, this incredible pace and, and he's probably a bit freaked out by it all, to be honest. It's, it's not what he would expect you know, out of a, a relationship and, and he just wants to run for the hills. He's an 18-year-old kid who you know, hasn't had a lot of life experience and he's suddenly now into a, what we now call a same-sex marriage and I don't think he knows how to cope with that. After a while, the relationship starts breaking down. David is bringing other, other men home for uh, one-night stands, things like this. Well, that clearly, in any relationship, is going to put a tremendous strain on it and it's only a matter of time before the relationship breaks up completely. 
in terms of his future behaviour, what weight do you place upon the breakup of this relationship in terms of his future actions? I think from, from Dennis's point of view, he regarded this as a major relationship and the breakup as yet again rejection and, and a failure. And I think he, he's invested a lot, as people often do in their first serious relationship. It becomes all inspiring to him for other relationships, and I don't think other relationships will ever make that point. The second thing is, he then realises that he actually enjoys the company of men. He wants them in the, in the flat. He wants them staying more than just the one night. He actually wants a long-term relationship. Well, 12 months after the end of his relationship with David Gallishan, Dennis killed for the very first time. It was the start of a murderous spree that would last four years. But why does he kill for the first time? He wants the young man to stay with him. He wants a date for New Year's Eve. Don't we all have a, want a date on New Year's Eve? It's one of those nights that people want to be with other people. It's one of the loneliest nights of the, uh, that and Christmas Day to be on your own. He wants to have somebody with him. The, the young lad who he didn't realise was only 14 and thought he was 17, he comes back with him and he wants, Dennis wants him to stay on New Year's Eve. And the only way he's going to make him stay is if... He keeps him there. Now, he could have tied him up and kept him in bondage for the next couple of days, but I don't think he's that sophisticated. I think he says, oh, I need him to stay, and then strangulation takes place. But what's interesting is that he then has to drown him because he can't strangle him properly. Later ones, he actually strangles quite efficiently, which, again, is what we just see in killers. Escalation and skill base improves. The other interesting thing about the first one is... He doesn't dissect him. All the others, he uses his butchery skills that we've talked about earlier on and cuts them up and disposes. He doesn't do that with him. He keeps him underneath the floorboards for months and months and months until he then takes him out and burns him in the garden. All the others, he chops up. Why was that? He just he hadn't got his M.O. correct at this stage. It shows that this wasn't a premeditated act. Yeah, it just suggests that, doesn't it? So he, he perhaps didn't have the intention to go through with a plan that he'd been devising in his head for ages, but, but he had an opportunity. He had somebody who was giving him company. He didn't want that company to, to come to an end, and, and the only way that he could make sure that that, that person stayed there was to, to kill them. Was his relationship with David a break on any visit? visceral urges to kill, or was this effectively a crime of passion, a crime of rejection? Well, definitely he didn't plan it. I mean, this is just a case where he's responded because he's desperate. He's, he's forced into a corner where he's scared of loneliness, rejection, everything else, and I think he just responds to that. He didn't kill him for sexual needs. He kills him because he wants him to stay there. So in relation to the first murder, we suggest a crime of rejection, a crime of passion, not premeditated. In relation to the other killings, they follow the same pattern. You know, to which extent can we say that they were predatory in nature because he was seeking companionship and the inevitability was if that companionship was rejected, he would kill them? I don't think it's quite as clear-cut as that. We know cases of people come back and left. So he didn't kill everybody he brought back. And we know he went with other men and, and had very casual sex and things like that. It was a case of once he was in that setting, the environment of the flat, it then brought home to him the need that he had and this overwhelming need to be loved. Liz, the more he valued that person, the more he wanted a relationship and could foresee a relationship which would fulfil all those things that were absent in his childhood. 
that's the more likely that person would end up dead. Perhaps, yeah. It's that need to, to keep the person there, to keep that person in the flat. And when you look at some of his, his alleged behaviour with the, the bodies of his victims, he's not defiling them and, and, and doing incredibly degrading things to their corpses. He's kind of sitting them in the chair. He's talking to them. He's, he's kind of setting up this domestic picture of bliss, isn't he? Um, so he's trying to, to perhaps create that family environment in his flat. He, he literally got them from underneath the floorboards. He'd wash them, clean them, sit them by him, and they'd be watching the television. But that's really interesting, isn't it? It's that idea of creating that kind of nuclear family yes. situation where it's just you and your partner. But this is really interesting. Something you said, Mike, is that now of all the cases, you felt that Betty, his mother, was to blame. And the fact that he goes to such ends to create this nuclear family to replace this tranquility and sustained love and affection he would have anticipated from a normal family and a normal, rational, kind of affectionate mother. It's extraordinary that, you know, you felt that we can throw a lot of this back on Betty, more than any of the other cases. More than any of the cases, yes. Why is that? Because I think she was a very screwed up woman herself. And I think we have to accept that she has a lot to blame her for. She was very cold. She wasn't caring towards him. She seemed to lack any common sense in the way that she dealt with him with the death of his beloved grandfather. She really does come across as somebody who didn't care for her son. I think she, she gave him a, a very bad start. She singled him out as, as somebody who was, was different and less deserving of attention within the family and I think that did sow the seeds for, for what he went on to become. Just to get back to the mechanics of his murdering skill set, if you could say that, do you think he was getting a sexual thrill from murder after the first number of victims. No, no, it's not sexual. He doesn't ever have penetrative sex with them once they're dead. He does masturbate over them in a kind of ritual of, of uh, love and attention towards them. But he's not driven like a lot of sex killers who want uh, power and control and the sex is part of that. He's not sexually driven. He's driven emotionally by the need to have company. And why does he kill so many because he runs out of uh, lovers. Companions. Yeah. You know, he's got to keep his stock up. He's got bodies all over the place, but then he's got to dispose of them. He burns several of them in, in the first flat, and then the second one he has to cut them up. You can only keep a body for so long before it gets too messy, uh, too smelly, and people are going to give attention to it. Liz, how does he get away with it for so long? He appears to be methodical in his butchery skills, mm. but he's not that fastidious about his disposal of the bodies. And I think we've got to look at the, the cultural context of the time, haven't we? So in terms of, of young homosexual men who went missing, yet how much attention did the police give to, to those cases? How seriously did they take it when a, a man came in and reported a sexual assault that had been perpetrated by another man? So so I think yeah, he's allowed to go under the radar because of those types of values and attitudes and beliefs that we've got towards this group of people. Talk to me about his victims. He didn't actually target his victims the same way as serial killers. Serial killers usually target people that they have no connection with, they're not going to be connected with them, so therefore the police aren't going to find them. He actually kills people he knows. It may be a very short-term relationship, but he's killing people he knows in a very specific group, people he wants company with. He's quite different from our normal serial killer who wants to kill for pleasure and for sexual arousal and for violence and, and all the kicks and that. He doesn't do that. 
And that's what makes him unusual. He could have been caught after the first one. He, he took a, a young student back to him, a Chinese student called Andrew Ho, and he tried to kill him and strangle him, and Ho managed to beat him off. Ho went to the police, said this guy's been sexually assaulting me. The police went and interviewed him. They had a case, but Ho, obviously wanting to protect his own sexual behaviour, dropped the charges. Had he gone ahead then, it might have raised the issues of what um, Dennis Nielsen was doing. If they raided the, f- the flat, they would have found the body and we would have been on one case only. Well, in 1983, following complaints to the landlord, the drains at the flats where Nielsen lived were checked for blockages. During the inspection, what was thought to be human remains were found and the police were alerted. Tests proved that the remains were human and the police returned to the flat to question Nielsen. On entering the premises, they were overwhelmed by the stench of rotting flesh and on questioning, the scale of Nielsen's crimes became apparent. Calmly, Nielsen admitted to the police that he'd killed 15 or 16 men. Is he a psychopath, Liz? Um, I don't think he's a psychopath because I don't think he has that kind of emotional emptiness that we see with other psychopaths. Other psychopaths don't seem to need other people. They want to play around with other people and their emotions because they are the puppets that pull the strings, but but they don't want to connect with people in the same way that I think Nilsson did. So I'd say that Nilsson's much more of a narcissist than, than he is a psychopath. You know, nature versus nurture argument that we always present in relation to someone like Dennis Nielsen. First point is, he wasn't born evil. He became a very disturbed person in many ways because of the culture, his family background and opportunity and luck. He was lucky in the sense of getting away with so many killings. The second thing, he's not psychopathic. He has a very ordinary background. You'd expect a psychopath to be involved with the legal system by the age of 13 or 14. He isn't. He's got a nice, clean record. He even ended up in the police, so he has to have a clean record. So he hasn't got the things you expect. And as as, as you said, he hasn't got that lack of emotion. He's actually got a lot of emotion and a lot of caring there, which you wouldn't expect in in a psychopath. So, Liz, to a great extent, much of what we know about Dennis and the intimacy of the details of his crimes unfortunately come from Dennis himself. So what credence can we give to that reconstructed narrative? Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because he's somebody who swings between seeing himself as special and, and fearing that, that he's worthless. So he acts with quite an inflated sense of his own self-importance. He's got an intense need for other people to, to look at him and be impressed with him. So with people like this, they tend to exaggerate their achievements and their abilities and, and that they're pathologically obsessed with what others think of them. So, so they do tend to, to over-dramatise things. To what extent can you believe what he's written? You can believe some of it because you can go and check it out with uh, evidence elsewhere. But it's his reflections that's interesting. When you reflect, you're looking back and you're trying to make sense of something. If you can't make sense of it, you'll change the story. And I think quite clearly in his case, he changes the story. He makes himself out to be much nicer than he is, a much better person. And I think that's because he has to. If you were absolutely honest with the fact that you've killed 15, 16 men, suicide would be an alternative to dealing with reflection. But you find, certainly I found this in my experience with dealing with killers, that if they really take on board all all their offences, they often become very, very depressed and become suicidal. And the ironic thing is they have to go through that before they can actually go out and, and start to make a life again. 
Certainly Dennis would clearly be enjoying the attention we're placing upon him and his crimes. He would, absolutely, because he's, he's centre stage again, isn't he? And everybody's talking about him. And, and that is something that is going to feed that, that narcissism you know, that is such a part of him. Dennis Nielsen was imprisoned in 1983 and was originally sentenced to 25 years. However, that was amended to a whole life tariff in 1994. He will remain in prison for the rest of his days. Well, thanks to my guests, Dr Elizabeth Yardley and Dr Mike Berry. And of course, you can watch the full documentary of murderers and their mothers, Dennis Nielsen on CBS Reality. In our next episode, we'll be looking at the case of Joachim Kinehawa, one of Poland's most notorious murderers. For me, Donald McIntyre, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.